And this morning we will read this final section of Matthew. And we'll start in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we dive into the word this morning. Father, we thank you for this journey that you've taken us over these last two and a half years, starting in Advent at Christmas time a few years back and landing here at Easter time with the resurrection and talking about the sending, the Great Commission. We thank you for this amazing work. We thank you that you write the Holy Scriptures through these human authors so that we might see even their unique personalities and vantage point coming out as we walk through these texts. We've been so encouraged to walk with Jesus for this season as he did ministry in Galilee and as he taught and as he healed, as he came into Jerusalem, as he was celebrated, as he was turned on, as he was put to death, as he rose, and as he sent these disciples. We pray that the lessons that we've learned over these past 30 months or so will stick with us forever, that we would know Jesus a little bit better. I think of Our old pastor, Jake Bielig, used to say, if you want to know Jesus, spend time with him. Walk with him through the Gospels every day. Walk around with Jesus. And we thank you and count it a privilege that we've been doing that for these last few years, walking with Jesus through his ministry and his earthly life. We pray as we go from here that we would be equipped to go walk with Jesus in the world. Just like the Great Commission says, that we would be sent to go and make disciples, baptizing, teaching. That you would use us in this place. That this promise that you would be with us always would remind us that even though you have ascended into heaven, you are no longer physically here on earth, that you're with us. And let that empower us as we live our lives. We pray for those of us in this room who are energized about the Great Commission already. We pray for those of us who really are either in a tough spot or could care less or who've gone through some hard things and are not really thinking about what you're calling us to do with our lives and who for for many of us, even this command to go and make disciples feels burdensome or difficult or the last thing on our minds in the season we're in. We pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that you haven't just sent us, but that you are with us. And that you want to walk with us as we make disciples in our homes and at work and at school and wherever we go. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of fitting this morning that as we talk about making disciples of all nations, we get to see a few glimpses of disciples being made of all nations around the world. Disciples being made in Cuba. Disciples being made in China and Southeast Asia and Thailand. My question for us this morning is that as we watch these videos, what are you thinking about? 
Are you in a season of life right now where you watch a video about Cuba and you think, I need to give money or I need to go there? I've met people in our church who've seen videos like that or had experiences like that and said, you know what, I'm going to give my life to Cuba. I want to move there. Right? I, want to, I need to be all in with this thing. Is that where you're at today? You see Mark and Larry training Chinese pastors. You think, man, I want to get over there. I want to train people. I want to be trained. I want to be sent. I want to partner in the God's global work. Are you thinking that? Or maybe you're thinking, I'm so glad we have other people to go and do that so that I can stay here. Are you thinking about sending money? Is your heart stirred? Or are you thinking about other things? Now, I don't mean that in a condemnatory way. I think all of us have seasons in life where we are like leaning forward into what God is doing and we're all in and we're excited. And where you come to church, you're just waiting for a word from the Lord because you know you're going to go obey that thing and your life's going to be changed. We all, most of us have seasons like that. But we also have seasons on the other side. Seasons where you feel like, I think I might be getting too old for this whole make disciples thing. And seasons where we're walking through times of grief or hardship. And, and we know God's called us to do stuff, but there's a lot of stuff we got to do right now. There's a lot of stuff emotionally we're going through right now. And so when you watch a video like that, it's, maybe it's, hey, good for you guys, but not right now for me. Can you look back at a time in your life when you were just fired up about the gospel or about missions or about making disciples where God was using you to meet with someone else and train them up or using you and your finances to change the world? Can you think of a time like that? For those of you who are in a season now where making disciples is probably not the first thing on your mind, I think you're in good company in Matthew 28. I think a lot of times we read the story about the disciples up on that mountain receiving the Great Commission, right? It's called the Great Commission, right? And we picture these disciples as if they were hearing these words from the Lord and saying, yeah, we can't wait, let's do this. We're ready and raring to go. But as I read this passage, I feel like even Matthew, as he writes it, is giving us some clues that the disciples Jesus meets in Galilee were not ready and raring to go as much as they were fatigued. Broken, hurting. Even the first few words of that section, then the 11 disciples. One of their number had just killed himself. Jesus comes and it says, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus raised from the dead. He appeared to the disciples he said, go to Galilee, there you'll see me. They go to Galilee, he shows up, half of them are worshiping him, and some of them are doubting. You know, we don't know what they're doubting. Are they doubting, is this really Jesus? The word doubt can also mean hesitant. Are they hesitant to worship, hesitant to go all in with this thing? As we look through the life of the disciples over this past season, you can only guess how exhausted they are. Jesus comes into Galilee or comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and everyone's celebrating, but then he's turning over tables. Then the community's turning on Jesus. Then he's telling the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, hey, just so you guys know, I'm about to leave you <laughs> and I'm going, so I'm going to send you a helper, but I'm leaving you. And he says, you know, I'm going to be struck and all of you are going to scatter. And Peter's like, not me, Lord. He's like, you too, Peter, right? 
And then as Jesus is betrayed, as he's arrested, Peter scatters, the disciples scatter. They can't stand the pressure of all of Israel looking against Jesus, and they disappear. Judas kills himself. Jesus dies. He's buried. The tomb opens up Easter morning, and they're not even there. You'd expect the disciples to be standing outside with a sign like, Welcome back, Jesus. But they're gone. In John's account of the meeting of Jesus and the disciples in Galilee, Peter is excited to see Jesus, but he's hesitant. He feels like he's blown it. And when I read this text, I picture these disciples and picture a, a haggard bunch of people. And Jesus comes to these guys who are only 11, not 12 who are doubting and worshiping. And he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations. And we think through the disciples through the lens of how tired and broken they must be, through the doubting and the suicide of Judas and all that went on that week and into this period now. You would assume that go and make disciples of all nations would be like this exciting rallying cry. But I picture these guys kind of like, have you seen that, that miniseries, Band of Brothers? You know, or, or a group of military guys who go out and they fight this battle and not all of them make it. And now they're coming back and their heads are low and there's blood all over them and they walk back into camp. And, and I picture this passage, it's like their commanding officer comes and says, how are you guys doing? And they're like, we're tired. It's like, all right, let's go do another one, right? Like, no. And truth be told, sometimes that's how we feel. <laughs> We've gone through it in life. Sometimes we've gone through it apart from God. Sometimes we've gone through it with God. And we hear this command, go and make disciples of all nations. And you're like, God, can I just rest for a while first? I'm not sure. I trust you right now, maybe. I'm not sure this is for me. This used to be for me when I was in high school, when I was in college. But now I'm just trying to make disciples of myself, <laughs> It's called the Great Commission. It should energize us, but sometimes it doesn't. As we look through this passage this morning, we'll start to see some glimpses of why it should. In the same way we can catch glimpses of how the disciples were tired, we can catch glimpses in this passage of how Jesus' words were meant to minister to a tired bunch. How Jesus' words were not just meant to kick him back out the plane and say, jump again, right? But his words were meant to say, this commission is truly great and it's unique and it's beautiful and you are going to want to go on it. And so this morning, whether you're ready and raring to go and make disciples or if that's the last thing on your mind, listen carefully to these words of Jesus in this passage. Because his great commission truly is great and it truly is unique. And it truly is different than anything that you've ever experienced. You know, we read the Great Commission and we feel like it sounds like something new, right? Like, no one's ever called people to go and make disciples of all nations before. But the interesting thing is if you've kind of done the Bible in a year thing or you've read through the Old Testament, you probably have picked up on the fact that go and make disciples of all nations has been there since the beginning. In the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth. He formed this family, Adam and Eve. And what's the first thing he said to them? Be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth and rule over it. God creates this couple in the garden. He says, the first thing I want you to do is start multiplying out and spread my kingdom throughout all the earth. In a sense, make disciples of all nations starting here and go to there. But as you read through the first few chapters of Genesis, you see that the people did not obey the Lord. By chapter 6, it had gotten so bad that God floods the place. And then Noah and his family, eight people, come out of the ark, and God tells them again, go out. (laughs) Rule over the world. But the people don't. Three chapters later, the people instead are saying, instead of going out that way, Let's build a tower up to the heavens and make a great name for ourselves here. And so God says, nope. And he grabs them and he says, you're going to go out there. And Genesis 11 tells us that God scatters the people over the face of the earth. I want your kingdom to go that way. God grabs Abraham in the next chapter out of his nation and says, Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty nation from you and your descendants. They'll be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to all nations. But as we keep reading through the Old Testament, we see the people keep trying to build a kingdom that's insular. Give us a king who can rule over us. But even then, in the kingdoms of Solomon, in the kingdoms of David, we catch this glimpse that God is saying, my heart is not just for you, it's for the nations. Solomon prays for the temple that he dedicates, the beautiful temple of Solomon. He says, God, may people from all nations be blessed by this building as they come to worship you and get sent back out into the world again. But it doesn't stick. By the time Jesus walks on the earth and he starts talking about the Gentiles, People don't want to hear anything about it. It's kind of like Jonah, right? God says, go to Nineveh. No, I want to stay here. I want to stay here. I don't want to go there. Now, this is the human condition. Many of us, when we first decided to step into Christianity and follow Jesus, the first thing on our minds was, God, I will follow you, but don't send me overseas. How many of you have ever prayed that prayer before? Nobody raised their hand. I've talked to many of you who pray that. If you're going to come and talk to us about what's going on in your lives, you've got to be honest and sure. Just don't send me to Africa. God, if I send $25 to Cuba, can you just keep me here? I love that Larry and Mark can go train pastors in China. I want to stay in America. I don't want to get a passport. Right? There's something about us that we don't want to go to a place that's different and uncomfortable and carry this gospel that we don't know how to share with these other people with. It's the human condition from Genesis to where we sit today. Maybe you hear the Great Commission. You think, "Uh, God, is there a way I can just do this in my house? Can I just do this by coming to Seminar 101, right? And And then I'm fulfilling the Great Commission. What boxes do I have to check in order to say I'm making disciples of all nations? I just be a good person here and I send some money to Asia, right? That's how I do it. And so as I read the Great Commission, and I don't know how the disciples were thinking, but I wonder if it sounded new to them. Or if it feels like Jesus is just hitting the reset button on what God had said over and over and over again. Okay, now that I've died, now that I've raised, now that I'm ready to ascend, let's try this again. Go make disciples. 
But as we read this text, we see that there is something different this time. That when Jesus tells them to go and make disciples, he says it in a way and with a power that is different than anyone else who's ever said, go to the ends of the earth, has been able to say before. Jesus says at the beginning of his statement, go and make disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. All authority has been given to me, so you go. And this is not Jesus saying that he didn't used to have authority over all things. We know, as we read the scriptures, that Christ has had power over all things since the beginning of creation and before. He has always been the creator, the authoritative figure, the God of all creation. He's not saying there's something new in his position as ruler. Jesus is saying that because of something that has happened to him, now he's been granted an authority that he didn't have in the same way before. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, and because of his imminent ascension. Something has happened to Jesus that has made it so that God has now given him this authority with which he can tell these guys to go. I think to understand this, we need to know a little bit about how authority worked and how kings worked and how Messiah worked in the mind of the first century people. You kind of catch glimpses of this as you see Jesus doing his ministry on earth. They kept trying to seize him and make him king by force. But Jesus didn't seem like he wanted to be king by force. He wanted to be king when the kingdom was given to him. That's what he's saying here. It's been given to me. Even when he comes in on Palm Sunday, they're shouting Hosanna in the highest. And they're expecting that Jesus is about to ascend to his throne and be the king. They lead him down on Palm Sunday on that donkey right to the temple, right? Where Jesus ascends the the steps of the temple. But instead of sitting down on a throne, he turns over the tables. Jesus, you're supposed to be ruling, right? You're supposed to be getting authority. But Jesus doesn't want to grab authority. Jesus wants authority to be given to him. There's a scholar named named N.T. Wright who says that if you truly want to be a king who has real authority, you can't just ascend to a throne and sit down on it. You've got to conquer the enemy first. Right? What the disciples were waiting for was that Jesus would go ascend his throne, sit down, and then send out legions of troops to go and conquer Rome, the enemy. But Rome was not Jesus' enemy. And Jesus knew that he wasn't going to ascend the throne until the enemy was conquered first, right? He's supposed to go out, do amazing battle, then come back bloodied but winning and ascend the throne, sit down and say, all right, now what are we going to do with this kingdom because the enemy is dead? But Jesus didn't fight Rome. Jesus didn't fight Israel. Jesus fought death. Jesus fought sin. And that's what made the disciples so confused on that Passion Week, right? That Jesus, they thought, was going to ramp up and ascend to a a throne, but instead, it's like he ramped down and ended up on a cross. Where Jesus was supposed to be the one who fought and won, instead it looked like they fought him and won. But when Jesus was on the cross, he cries out, Tetelestai, it is finished, as if he was fighting a battle on the cross. And we know as we read the theology and hear the significance of what Jesus did, that he was, he was fighting sin on the cross. But as the Father looked at the Son and poured his wrath upon sinful humanity in the person of Jesus, Jesus was fighting our battle for us. And then when he died, that wasn't him losing. That was him continuing to fight. Because after fighting and winning against sin, Jesus had more on his plate, more in his agenda. 
Jesus wanted to go and fight death itself and win. So Jesus, in the grave, in a sense, dives into Hades, wrestles with death itself, rips the head off of death, and then comes up out of the tomb and says, now the enemy is dead. I've beaten sin. I've beaten death. And now I'm ready to reign. And Jesus comes to the disciples in Galilee here in Matthew 28, and he says, I'm about to send you out like I'm your ruler, like I'm your king, because I have beaten the enemy of sin and death, and all authority has now been given to me. I am fit to reign. What does Jesus do after he gives the Great Commission? He ascends into heaven. He heads up the steps to his heavenly throne, his real throne, not just merely an earthly throne. He ascends into heaven where he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God and begins to rule and reign over all the earth. The Great Commission is different than the Great Commission in Genesis 1, Genesis 6, Genesis 12, Kings, right? all the rest of the Bible, because the Great Commission is Jesus saying, I'm going to send you out to the ends of the earth to be on fire for me, to bring my gospel to the nations, and I've beaten sin, and I've beaten death, and I'm ready to rule, and this is a different type of mission than before. And now you're not, you're not going to go and fight Rome. You're not going to go and fight China, right? You're not going to go and fight Cuba. This, this is not a crusade thing that's on Jesus' mind. This, the, the enemy was sin and death, and it's been beaten. Now you go and tell the world that the enemy is dead. You tell the world that sin has no hold on people anymore because of Jesus. You tell the world that death has no sting anymore because of Jesus, that if you turn to Christ and if you put your faith in Jesus, he will transform you, he'll give you life, and you will never, ever die. It's a different mission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This phrase, make disciples. We've been in Matthew for two and a half years, and, and this is the first time make disciples has ever been used in Matthew's language. He's talked about disciples a lot. He, he's talked about people who have been made into disciples, like been turned into a disciple, but there's never been a command to make disciples in the book of Matthew. It's the first time. And Jesus, after all that, after everything's done, after death is beaten, he stands on this mountain and he tells his disciples, okay, we've been walking together for the last three years and you've watched me make disciples. You've watched me make you into disciples. You've watched me heal. You've watched me teach. You've watched me do everything. You've lived with me for three years and now I'm about to leave and now I want you to do what you've seen me do. I've made you into a disciple and now you go and make disciples yourself. The Apostle Paul picks up on this later in one of his letters when he says, the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many people, go and entrust to reliable men who can go and teach others also. That there's this multi-generational idea of discipleship that when the master leaves, when Jesus ascends into heaven, now it's our part to take this message and bring it to more people. What you've seen me do now, you do too. And I'm leaving but you guys got this. And I think for me, that's kind of where it breaks down a little bit. Because I feel like if I was a disciple, if I was one of these 11, 
it would sound really fun to go and make disciples with Jesus. But it would seem kind of scary to make disciples without <laughs> Jesus. You guys got this now. They're thinking, like, we're the same people. We were. Remember we just scattered? Remember they turned on you and we couldn't handle it? Remember that, Jesus? And Peter could say, hey, Jesus, you remember when, when they turned you over? We kind of turned you over. And then people started turning their heads and saying, who's with him? And I ran away? Now you want me to go into those angry crowds and make disciples of all nations without you? And Jesus tells them, I will be with you always. And that's encouraging, right? That sounds like one of those things that you say to a kid, like when grandma dies. Hey, she's always with us. Oh, I'm sorry that you're mourning about the death of your loved one, but you know what? They're with us in spirit. Well, yeah, I I guess, but you know that's different, right? (laughs) when, When your mom passes away, she's with you in spirit. It's not the same. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. I wonder if the disciples were standing there hearing, okay, Jesus, that's nice, but we... We know you're leaving. (laughs) When I'm with you always, I know you've said you're going to leave us. So if you're talking about this like metaphoric with us always, I don't know how helpful that is. Sometimes it feels like life here on this planet, trying to make disciples and do what God's called us to do and serve him. It it feels like we're alone. Yes, it's amazing. Jesus has ascended to his heavenly throne, but heaven is really far Right? It's great that Jesus is in heaven when you're fighting with that person or having conflict or trying to share the gospel or trying to go and train up your kids or trying to walk through this hard season. It's amazing to know that you've got a God in heaven, right? But that's a far, far place away. I wonder what the disciples were thinking when Jesus said, I'll be with you always. I wonder if they knew what he really meant by that. And we catch glimpses of it in the garden. It says, I'm leaving. It's not good that I stay with you, but I'm going to send another helper. I always wonder, really, it's who are you going to send? Some guy, right? This guy shows up, hey, I'm Frank. I'm the helper that Jesus sent, right? (laughs) Who's this helper? If If you read the account of the Great Commission through the lens of Luke in the book of Acts, We get to catch a glimpse of who this helper is. Luke tells us the same story. He says in Acts chapter 1, you can turn there if you'd like to, a few pages to the right. So we're already leaving the book of Matthew. It's happening. We're not going to start a a 28-chapter series in Acts next week. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When Jesus said, I will be with you always, when he said, I don't leave you as orphans, I send you another helper, he's talking about this one, the Holy Spirit, sent from God. And I don't know if the disciples knew what he meant by that. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit was there in creation. The Holy Spirit has been there the entire time, as long as the Father and Son have existed. The Spirit has coexisted with them eternally from ages past to ages to come, eternally coexisted, God, in three persons. So it's not like the Spirit was new. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon leaders and anoint them, come upon seasons and empower them for ministry. And I don't think the disciples had a frame of mind to understand what it would actually be like when the Spirit, this new covenant community of the Spirit, is formed on Pentecost. That when Jesus said, it's good that I'm leaving because this one that's going to come and help you is better, that he meant it. The disciples hear this. He says, don't leave Jerusalem. Stay here. Don't go anywhere until you receive the gift that I promised. So, like, ooh, what's the gift? Right? It's the promised Holy Spirit. It's not a Ferrari. The promised Holy Spirit. And so they're, they're in Jerusalem and they're praying and they're huddling in one place in Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden, Luke tells us, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So they're sitting there praying, waiting for the gift that was coming, like the UPS guy's on his way. But instead, right, the building starts shaking, this fire starts coming, and instead of like this fire from God appearing in the middle of the room and them like bowing down before the God of the fire or something, the fire separates and comes above each of them, and they all start speaking different languages they'd never studied before. And there happened to be, at that time, people from all the nations of the world in Jerusalem for a festival. And they came up the hill because they heard the bang, right? And they come up and they see what's happening. And they start hearing the gospel of Jesus proclaimed in their native language, which the disciples had never studied. And they say what's only fitting. Are you guys drunk? It's a true story. (laughs) And Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, who last time all of Jerusalem came because the gospel of Jesus was proclaimed and they tried to kill Jesus and Peter ran away last time, Peter stands up in front of this mob and he says, gentlemen, we're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. Another true story. You should read the book of Acts. It's crazy. (laughs) And then Peter who like 40 days earlier was running away and hiding from crowds, stands up and eloquently presents the gospel, culminating in this phrase, this Jesus whom y'all crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. Like drops the mic. (laughs) (laughs) And you would expect the crowd to yell, get him! But Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 that they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what should we do? And Peter, I don't know if he's like, has the Great Commission bouncing around in his brain. Peter says, be baptized, repent, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. They're like, all right. 
And so on the temple steps, Peter, who ran away 40 days earlier, after preaching the first gospel message, tells a mob of people whose hearts have been cut to the core by the Holy Spirit to be baptized, and 3,000 people get baptized and are added to their number in that moment. Now that's what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit show up. And Jesus says, it's better that I leave. But Peter's better <laughs> now that Jesus is gone. The Spirit is indwelling him, giving him words to say. The Spirit is hovering over the hearts and the minds and the ears of the audience, breaking them to the truths of the gospel instead of hardening them against the truths of the gospel. The Spirit is compelling these folks to be baptized. The Spirit is giving Peter wisdom to tell them to do so. The Spirit is forming together a new church on day one with thousands of people from 11 to 3,000 after one sermon. From a guy who ran away from three people who noticed him around a fire 40 days earlier. That's what it looks like to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what it looks like for Jesus to be ruling and reigning from his heavenly throne. Now, if you want to go on a wild ride this week, read the book of Acts through the lens of Jesus ruling over the earth from his heavenly throne. That's the first thing Jesus does is he says, listen, I'm going to go, wait till you get the Spirit. I'm going to go ascend to the throne and then sit down. Jesus ascends into heaven, sits down, the Spirit comes, and then and Peter preaches, everybody gets saved. The church is formed. Persecution comes, he gives them words. Peter and John see crippled people and he heals them. They get thrown in prison and Jesus like opens the doors to the prison. Right? Jesus from heaven is awesome, right? Opens the doors of the prison and then tells them, hey, don't go anywhere. The prison guards come in. They're like, what's going on? And Peter says, you should be a Christian. He's like, I'm in, right? His whole family gets baptized, his whole pagan family. Like, all right, they come out, another preaching in the square. Like, wait, how did they get out of prison, right? And then more people get saved. And then they go and kill Stephen and the church scatters and they start sharing the gospel wherever they go. Right? And, and the church starts realizing that something special is happening because Jesus is controlling the world from his throne and the Spirit is doing his work. They're realizing that when they preach a message, people turn their hearts towards Christ instead of wanting to crucify them. They find out that when people do want to crucify them, it only serves to expand the church. So much so that when Jesus from heaven stops Paul in his tracks from his heavenly throne and blinds him and says, you need to stop persecuting me. Peter's like, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Stop. Or Paul says that. Thank you. <laughs> and Jesus heals him of his sight, of his blindness that he has given him. He says, now go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as you read through like the last nine or ten chapters of the book of Acts, you see this unquenchable fire in the Apostle Paul where he says, I'm getting the gospel to Rome. I will not be stopped. I'm getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what he told me to do. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? He said, don't leave Jerusalem. But when the Spirit comes, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Where's the end of the earth? Rome itself. And so Paul says, to Rome I must go. He gets thrown into prison, right? He's got people on this hunger strike. We're not going to eat until Paul is killed, right? Oh, sorry, guys. And, and Paul keeps appealing to Caesar. I'm going to Rome. He gets on a boat. The storms come up. Jesus shipwrecks the boat. Paul has this, like, insight to say, let's... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm thinking through this whole story. It's amazing. <laughs> Calm down. 
You don't need this whole story. Read the book of Acts. They're snakes. They're biting him. He's healed. Nobody dies in the boat. They start, it's like Jonah, but the good version. It's read the book of Acts this week. If you don't, we're going to do a whole three-year series on the book of Acts. Read it this week. <laughs> and we know the book is the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Acts of Jesus from his heavenly throne as all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's what God can do through spirit-indwelled believers as they simply listen and obey. And what does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. That's now. And if you're fired up to go and serve the Lord Go be fired up in a way where you realize that the power in your ministry is the spirit in you. It's not you. Don't be fired up to go and make disciples, right? Or fired up to just go give a bunch of money and see what you can do, right? You can't do anything. Be fired up to go indwelled by the spirit to see what God can do through you as he simply engages you with the lost world. Now, the beautiful thing about this passage, I think, is for these disciples who are ragged and they're tired they don't know what's coming right I don't know Matthew doesn't tell us how they're feeling when they get the great commission but when you see what actually happens you realize "Ooh, that's awesome and we get the benefit of of seeing the whole story and so my advice for you if you're someone this morning who's like you know what like I am just tired <laughs> I, I'm not ready to go to China and train a bunch of pastors right I, I'm not ready to go move across the world I'm not ready to go across the street and talk to my neighbor about Jesus today, right? I'm not ready to have those conversations that happen when I invite my coworkers to church. I'm not ready for that. Maybe do what Jesus told the disciples to do first. And Jesus says, don't go anywhere. Go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Jerusalem, right? Wait where you are until the Spirit comes. And if you're a Christian, the Spirit has already come. So I'm not saying like the Spirit's going to show up in your house or something. You, you already have the Spirit if you've trusted in Christ. He has indwelt you with his Spirit. He's there. But I feel like the reason that's good advice is because maybe the reset button that we need, those of us who are tired today, is for us to have a season where we say, you know what? I need to stop thinking Christianity as doing stuff for God. And, and I need to realize that the message of the Great Commission is not go for me. It's walk with me. As you go, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey, and I am with you always. It's not, see you later as Jesus kicks your boat into the ocean, right? It's Jesus saying, hey, sit there till I get in the boat, and I'm going to take you along the way. So if you're tired today, maybe step one, two, and three for you is to carve out some time this week. Five minutes, one minute, right? Start small, make it two minutes the next day. And come before the Lord and say, God, I, I know you've called me to be on your mission, but I've lost track of that. I know you've called me to walk with you, but I, I feel like I have no idea where you are. You've called me to go and baptize folks. You've called me to go and teach people to obey everything that you've commanded. I don't know if I'm obeying what you've commanded. God, I pray that you would give me something to obey today. Give me a person that comes across my path that you pique my interest to say, you know, you should go and talk to that person. I'll pray with them. 
should just go and meet that person that you just kind of look the other way when they come out to take their trash cans out, right? Like, God, just give me something to do with you where I'm going to step into it. And if it's easy, that's awesome, right? Where I can step into it and trust, okay, God's with me as I do this. He's with me as I knock on my neighbor's door. He's with me as I go to my, my co-worker's cubicle and say, how was your weekend, right? He's, he's with me. And I don't have to have an agenda. I don't have to know where it's going to go. I'm just going to have a moment in my life where I'm going to say, God, I know you're with me. I don't see you right now. I trust you're with me. Give me something to obey today where I can experience you being with me. And God, maybe we'll start kind of like walking real slow. But God, I would love to get to a place where I'm just walking in step with you. The Apostle Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And if you've been kind of sitting down for a long time and the Spirit's been kind of like, all right, all right, all right, right. First of all, he's not doing that. Second of all, maybe it's time to stand up and say, okay, God, tell me where to put my foot for step one. And see what he does as you start to obey what he's commanded you. And let's look back in a year and see as God has equipped you to go and teach others to obey what he has commanded all of us to do as well.